Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Well, good morning. We're glad that you're with us, and uh, I'm going to continue on the series that, I ha- that I've been doing in church. Um, we've called it, uh, What's That About? And I've added at the end of that title a concept that has to do with end-time events. So the first two weeks, we talked about what's that about, Daniel's 70 weeks. Last week, I began uh, dealing with the subject, what's that about Israel? You know, when it comes to end-time scenarios, in most of them at least, Israel figures largely. And I want to just take the time to consider what's that about. So last week, and I won't go over it all, but last week I suggested that any study of Israel, its people, its land, its future, must take into account the four great symbols of Jewish identity, of Judaism. And they are racial identity, temple, Torah, and territory or land. I spoke about the fact that Israel's story finds its climax, its consummation in Jesus, Israel's Messiah. He was God's true and faithful Israelite through whom God was able to fulfill all the promises that he had made to Abraham. We talked last week about how he took on Jewish identity, as in, I am the true vine. And he also took on Jewish mission, as in I am the light of the world. And it was he through whom God intended to bring the blessing and rescue to the world. He, he is the pinnacle and fulfillment of Israel's story and of all of the promises made in the Old Testament. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For all of God's promises find their yes and amen in him. You know, we, we, we often sing that song and we personalize it as if that passage means all of the promises that God has made to me are yes and amen. And I'm not necessarily against that because if God has made a promise to you, he will be faithful and it will be yes and amen. But that isn't actually what Paul is saying. Paul is saying as Jesus is the consummation and pinnacle of Israel's story, all of the promises made to Israel and to Abraham's seed find their yes and amen in him. Now, when it comes to talking about and considering the role of Israel in the world and in the future, it cannot be done without reference to the climax of that story. The four great symbols of Jewish identity must be passed through the Christ person event, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. To take any of those four great symbols from the Old Testament and pass them through the New Testament into the, into the New Testament era and possibly on even to the end of the age without taking them through Christ as the pinnacle of that story is to do significant damage to the story. What we began to see last week was that as we take those symbols through the Christ person event, they undergo significant and in some cases breathtaking redefinition and expansion. Israel, as to its racial identity, is redefined in and through Messiah Jesus. And I took some time last week to go through the scriptures, particularly Paul's 
epistles to show that Israel is now no longer considered along the lines of physical descent of birth, but along the lines of faith. It is no longer about race. It is now about grace. It's grace that determines membership in Abraham's family. Galatians chapter 6 verse 15 says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. It's new creation through Christ by the power of the Spirit that redefines Abraham's family, Abraham's seed. We looked at a number of New Testament scriptures that I think made, a, made this uh, compellingly clear. Abraham's family Jewishness, if you like, is now about being in Jesus. The Israel of God, as Paul called it, is now made up of Jews and Gentiles who have put their trust in Messiah Jesus. God's olive tree remains, as Romans 11 says, but, it is, but it's expanded to include the wild olive branches that have been engrafted into the story. So unbelieving Jews have been cut off. Believing Gentiles are engrafted into, the Israel, in, into Israel's story. Now this is not, as some people say, replacement theology. In fact, it's fulfillment theology. It's expansion theology. I noted exactly the same thing happens when you take the second great symbol of Jew Jewish identity, the temple, and pass it through the lens of Christ as the climax of Israel's story. The physical temple is then redefined and expanded. And we saw that sacred space is now in the person of Jesus. In John chapter 2, he declared that he was the temple. All that the temple was is now fulfilled in Christ. The place where heaven and earth met, where the eternal and the temporal and the natural and the supernatural intersected. The temple, which was the place where atonement was made, forgiveness was ministered and worship was offered, is now fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He is that place. His body is the place where the Shekinah glory dwells, where the divine presence is mediated. So sacred space, then, is redefined and expanded as we, his body, the church, are now also the temple of God. So we see both those two symbols, the racial identity and the issue of temple, taken through the Christ lens, are redefined and expanded. What I want to do is now to pick up the other two symbols of Jewish identity, Torah and territory, and do exactly the same to them. Pass them through the Christ person event, and what we'll see is they too are redefined and expanded. So let's consider Torah. Torah, the law, was Israel's covenant charter. Torah and temple formed an indissoluble bond. So Torah sanctioned and regulated what happened in the temple, and the temple was the practical focal point for the observance and outworking of Torah. With Israel's exile from the land, Torah became an increasingly important focal point of what it meant to be Jewish, of Jewishness. Absent from the land and temple, Torah became, for millions of Jews, portable land and movable temple. 
exiled as they were, they longed for the land to be repossessed and for the temple to be rebuilt. But in their exilic presence, uh, present rather, Torah provided the second best substitute. And it's really hard to overestimate the role of Torah in Jewish identity. One author suggested to be a Jew may be reduced to a single pervasive symbol of Judaism, Torah. What the Jews did was they personified Torah. They, to them it wasn't a thing, it was in fact a person, personal. They spoke of it as being pre-existent. In their thinking, Torah was embodied in and inextricably related to light, life, truth, glory, freedom, salvation. Torah was said to play a significant role in creation. When in Genesis God spoke and said, let us make man in our image, Jewish rabbis claimed that the plural language used there indicate, indicated that God was actually speaking to his Torah. Tradition stated that not only did Torah play a significant role in creation, but that in fact the world was sustained by Torah and that without Torah the world would not continue. A Torah scroll, scroll was said to be beyond price. And it was said, where two or three gathered to study Torah, the Shekinah dwelt or rested on them. Now, all of this language has a very familiar ring to us for those of us who know the New Testament. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We tend to read that as, well, the law was finished in Christ. And it kind of has that meaning, but it's, it's more than that. And then NIV says that, that Christ is the culmination of the law. Now, the English word end comes from the Greek word telos, which has the idea, rather than of the finish, it has the idea of the goal, the purpose. So Torah had a goal, it had a purpose, it had an end point, and Christ was that end point. We've talked about Christ being the climax of the covenant. He's the end point to which Torah pointed. Jesus himself embodied and was the fulfillment, the goal of Torah. He was its fullest revelation and expression. Professor Craig Keener says, Jesus of Nazareth is the final realization of Torah. And all that the Jews claimed for Torah is actually found and embodied in Jesus. We know he is the creator. All things were made by him, John said, and without him was nothing made that was made. He sustains creation. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says he does it by the word of his power. He is the light, the life, the truth, the glory. He is freedom and he is salvation. All of those concepts anticipated in Torah find their fulfillment in Messiah Jesus. In John's gospel particularly, uh, it, it epitomizes Jesus as the personified Torah of Judaism. All of the statements of John's prologue, which is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, with the exception of the phrase, the word became flesh, can be paralleled with statements made in Jewish sources about Torah. Christ functioned in the Gospels much as Torah did in contemporary Judaism. That phrase, where two or three are gathered uh, to study Torah, the Shekinah, uh, is, is there and dwelling among them. We, we all know that passage that where Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. 
Now, that must have flabbergasted his listeners. They knew that phrase referenced Torah, and here's Jesus saying, it's not Torah, it's me. When he said to them, take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn of me, again, his listeners would have been astounded. Contemporary Jews spoke of taking the yoke of Torah upon themselves. To take the yoke of Torah upon oneself was to devote oneself to its study and to its observance. It was to accept the yoke of the commandments and the divine mandate to distinctive behavior. So when Jesus said, take my yoke, in effect, again, he is saying, I am the fulfillment of all that Torah was meant to be. What the Torah as a whole symbolized for Israel is now to be identified in the Son, the Son that the Father has sent into the world. So like the other symbols, that of racial identity and that of temple, when Torah is passed through the Christ person and event, it, it, it is fulfilled. And uh, what Torah demanded but could not produce is now done in us by Christ through the Spirit. So, as with the other symbols, it is taken into the person of Jesus, expanded and redefined. Now we come to the last of the symbols, uh, the land. And uh, if, if up till this point I have been walking on somewhat on thin ice, really from here on in, I'm trying to walk on water as far as many people are concerned. A huge part of the Old Testament narrative concerns the land that God promised Abraham and his descendants. In fact, biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann says the land is the most important theme in biblical theology. That possibly might be somewhat of an overstatement, but, but not by too much. In the book of Genesis, a promise is made to Abraham concerning land. It is made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17. And then it's reiterated and restated to his descendants, to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, and to Jacob in, Je in Genesis chapter 28. Now, as the book of Genesis unfolds, we see the patriarchs wandering the land without actually ever securing a foothold. The first bit of land they get is found in Genesis 23, where they purchase a cave, the cave of Machpelah, for, for Sarah's burial, and then, and then it becomes the burial site for Abraham and the others of the patriarch. But the book of Genesis concludes with Jacob and his family actually in Egypt, with the promise of the land only bare visible. In the book of Exodus, Israel is freed and mobilized and organized and bound together um, with a covenant by God at Mount Sinai. And it seems like the possession of the land is imminent. But in fact, before the land is entered, there are detailed instructions about the tabernacle and its furnishings. And the message is that God's presence and the people's worship is actually more important than the promise of land. Leviticus begins, and it suspends the story even further while detailed laws are given, including in the latter chapters of, Je of Leviticus, laws about the land that they are to enter. The book of Numbers sees the spies sent out into the land, and as we know, they returned with a negative report, which so discouraged the people they began to murmur. 
They rebel and bring down God's judgment upon them. There's an abortive attempt to enter the land and then finally 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And one wonders, will this elusive promise of land ever be fulfilled? When we come to Deuteronomy, surely this new book will see them enter the land. But no, it both begins and ends with the people in Moab. Deuteronomy is a recapitulation of the story thus far, and it is a sustained exhortation on Moses' behalf to the people for obedience and faithfulness to the covenant. So we come to the book of Joshua. Joshua begins what they must have thought might never have happened. Joshua's main theme is the land, its invasion, its conquest, and its division among the tribes. By the time you get to the book of Judges, you realize how incomplete the initial conquest was, and it shows how the land of promise has quickly become a land of struggle. The question now is, will they survive in the land that they have entered? It isn't until the sustained victories and long rule of King David that Israel lives at peace with secure borders, embracing the territory as it's promised. If you know the story, you'll know the successive wickedness of kings beginning with and following after King Solomon ultimately sees Israel expelled from the land. The northern kingdom is exiled into Assyria in 721 BC. The southern kingdom is exiled into Babylon in 587 BC. Amid the gloom, uh, prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke words of hope and future restoration. There was the hope of a new exodus, which was, of course, partially fulfilled in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's clear then that land is a dominant symbol in Judaism and a significant part of their story. It's really important for us to consider when we are thinking about the symbol of land, we note that land is actually a, by, a byproduct of, of the covenant. The land was the gift of the covenant. It, it was not a possession that could be held independently. Its possession was contingent upon Israel's faithfulness to the covenant stipulations. Both the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy warned Israel in really stark terms about the conditional nature of promise as it related to land. So Leviticus chapter 18 verse 28 says, And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. In Leviticus 20 verse 22, it says, Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them, so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 25 and 27, After you've had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. So the land could not be possessed without reference to covenant faithfulness and righteousness. This is a vital part of understanding. God did not promise Israel the land unconditionally. 
God's covenants always have conditions. There is no biblical basis then or now for the idea that the land belongs to Israel perpetually, no matter how faithlessly she may be. As with the other symbols of Judaism, we cannot talk about them and seek, and, and seek to apply them as if Christ had not come and as if the New Testament had not been written. As with the other concepts, the concept of land must be passed through the Christ person event, as the other symbols are, and I'd like to suggest to you that what happens to the other symbols also happens to land. You find it redefined and expanded. Uh, there are hints in the Old Testament of this coming redefinition, in the same way that the Old Testament hinted that racial identity would not be the qualification ultimately of Abraham's family. Remember I talked last week how God uh, chose Isaac but rejected Ishmael. He chose Jacob but rejected Esau. And Paul references the fact that even back then uh, it was faith along the lines of faith that Abraham's family and seed would ultimately be made up. So even under the old Covenant, faith was the vital factor in determining who was part of Abraham's seed. And you see those same hints when it comes to considering the idea of land. Psalm 2 is well known as and well recognized as a royal messianic psalm. In verses 6 through 8, it speaks of the coming Messiah, and it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son, and today you have become, I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Note, would you, those words, inheritance and possession. Those are the very words that God used when he spoke to Abram and promised him land. It will be your inheritance and your possession. But here in the context of Messiah, what we see is inheritance and possession aren't related to a small piece of territory in the Middle East. They have to do with the whole of the cosmos, the whole of the world and all of the nations. When you come to the New Testament, it is very surprising to find, given the major theme that it is in the Old Testament, the land is not mentioned. Jesus, astoundingly, is completely silent with regards Israel's territorial aspirations. You, ha you have to ask, what kind of Messiah is this? Does not the age-old passion of land and city run through his veins like it does with all other Israelites? Did he not understand that without city and land, Jewish identity would be decimated? How could he be the Jewish Messiah and not support the national dream to reclaim Abraham's promises? I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus actually redefined the promise of land and of sacred space, and he presented himself as the locus now of sacred holy space. So when Jesus said, I am the vine, I talked last week about how that is, has to do with Israel's identity. Uh, the symbol of the vine is a profound picture of the nation of Israel. Uh, 
Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 2 says, My loved one had a vineyard on a, ver on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with the choicest of vines. And verse 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. So here's a vine being planted in land, and the prophet says that is Israel. Then, of course, you come to Psalm 80 verse 8, where it again describes Israel as a vine and it says you transplanted a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and you planted it. This is the rootedness of Israel in the land. Vine and land inextricably intertwined. To have one without the other is unthinkable. Land without vine is, is fruitless. Vine without land is, is dead. In John 15, Jesus takes up the image of vine and he changes the place of that rootedness. It is no longer in land, but it is in his person. He offers himself what attachment to the land had once promised Israel. Rootedness, security, inclusion, hope, life, they are now found in his person and not simply in land. When Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he responded to a question she asked about land and sacred space. She wanted to know which land, which temple, constituted the real sacred space. Is it in Jerusalem or is it in Samaria? Is it at that temple or is it in this temple? And interestingly, Jesus negates both. Neither, he said. It's in me. It's where the Spirit is working. After the resurrection, the disciples ask him in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Lord, are you going to free Israel from Rome now and restore us as an independent nation? This is a question about land. This is a question about Abraham's promises. Will they be realized? Is this the time? And Jesus, in effect, says, that's my father's business. What you will get is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the world. Now, this seems to be an echo of Psalm 2. All the earth, all the nations. The New Testament church did not reach back into the Old Testament to find a theological place for Holy Land. They possessed no territorial theology. Like Jesus, they were completely disinterested in, Jew in Jewish eschatology, eschatology devoted to the restoration of the land. Paul's silence on the promised land, uh, the land promised to Abraham, is, is actually deafening. One scholar said, Paul's silence on the land points not merely to the absence of a conscious concern with it, but to his deliberate rejection of it. The only time Paul references Abraham with the land of promise is a fascinating passage of scripture found in Romans chapter 4 verse 13, which says, It is clear then that God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was not because Abraham obeyed God's law, but because he trusted God to keep his promise. The NIV says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Question, when was Abraham ever told he would be in the inheritor of the, of the earth, that he would be the heir of the earth? Abraham was never told that. He was told that there would be the promise of a small portion of land in the Middle East.
So Paul does exactly what Psalm 2 did and what Jesus does in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. He redefines and then expands the concept of the promised land. It's no longer a small portion of land in the Middle East. Now it's the entire earth, the entire cosmos and all the nations. Paul regarded all that Abraham and Israel had been promised by God as being focused, fulfilled, and then surpassed in the person of Messiah Jesus. You know, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, how come nobody else is saying the things that you are saying? And it wasn't an angry question. Actually, it was a a, a very kind and genuine inquiry. My response to them was, they are. Let me share a couple of quotes, because what I'm saying, I realize, will seem new to some of you. However, W.G. Davies, in his book, The Gospel and the Land, states, The ancestry of Abraham has been redefined. The Messianic community is now rightly the Israel of God. The promised land is reinterpreted. No longer are God's purposes defined by the territorial aspirations of Judaism. God's plan involves a vision of the whole earth and all of the nations. Probably the most celebrated theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, rather bluntly said, if Christians pursue an interest in holy land, it would be a theological regression of the first order, a relapse into Judaism. Bishop N.T. Wright says the land, like the Torah, was a temporary stage in the long purposes of the God of Abraham. It was not a bad thing done away with, but a good and necessary thing now fulfilled in Christ and the Spirit. And F.F. Bruce says the earthly Canaan and the earthly Jerusalem were temporary object lessons. The Abrahamic land of promise finds its fulfillment in the new earth and the new creation. I'm not the only voice saying this. Modern Israel and Christian Zionists cannot make the claim that ancient land belongs perpetually to Israel, as if the new covenant had never been instituted by Jesus. Racial identity, temple, Torah and territory all must pass through Christ as the fulfillment and climax of all of the old covenant promises. As they are, we find them fulfilled, redefined, and expanded to take in the whole cosmos and all of the nations. I can imagine somebody saying, but Don, what you are saying ignores the fact that the land was promised to Abraham and his descendants, and it says forever. What do you do with that? Well, the Bible actually does say that. However, what you have to see is that many Old Testament promises that were explicitly said to be forever clearly weren't. They were, in fact, manifestly temporal in their duration. In the book of Exodus, chapter 21, a slave who wanted to serve a master for the rest of his life was taken to the tabernacle and his ear was bored through, and it says that from that moment on he was in servitude to that master forever. Same word. In Leviticus chapter 7, the Levitical formalities were said to be forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's descendants are said to rule forever. In 1 Chronicles 23, the Aaronic priesthood was told that it would serve forever. Now, none of these were in any sense to be everlasting. 
the Hebrew word olam isn't as infinite in the Hebrew as it sounds in English. An appeal to the fact that the land belongs to Israel forever isn't as weighty as some people would like to make it sound. Well, you say to me, well, Don, please, what about modern-day Israel? You do believe that its existence is a fulfillment of prophecy, don't you? Please? Well, given what I've said to this point, I think that's up for debate. But rather than be definitive and perhaps sink way below the thin ice, I've probably given you enough to consider, so I'll leave the door open on that. What I would like to say about modern-day Israel is that given Jewish history and the demonic horrors of the Holocaust, I think they needed a land, and I, for one, am glad that they were given it. I think the international community needs to stand with them against the threat of annihilation, which for them is a very real threat. I believe that they, like all people, should be able to live on their land in peace and in security. That, however, is not the same as giving national secular Israel carte blanche to behave in any way they like with the Palestinian people within their border and as regard their neighbours. John Piper says this, The secular state of Israel today may not claim a present divine right to the land, but they should seek a peaceful settlement not based on present divine rights, but on international principles of justice and mercy and practical feasibility. We should not give blanket approval to Jewish or Palestinian actions. We should approve or denounce according to biblical standards of justice and mercy among the people. Ethics needs to be at the forefront of that Middle Eastern situation, not eschatology. I, th I think it's wrong for Christian people to be unquestioningly pro-Israel and anti-Palestinian. It may be right to be pro-Israel or perhaps pro-Palestinian on any given particular issue, depending on the principles of justice and mercy. Over the years, I've had people say to me things like, we should heed the warnings, Don, to bless Israel and not to curse them. And when pushed, it seems that they interpret that in terms like prayer, money, unfaltering political support for the increased encroachment of settlements on the West Bank, and of course, weapon sales. Viewed biblically, at best, that must be considered somewhat suspect. You say to me, well, Don, you do believe that we should bless Israel, don't you? And I would want to say, as I said last week, which Israel are you talking about? If we're going to talk meaningfully about the role that Israel plays at the end of the age, I don't think we can do it by taking Old Testament concepts through into New Testament times and even to the end of the age without passing them through the Christ person and event. He is the climax of the covenant he is the pinnacle of Israel's story. He is the linchpin of everything going forward in that unfolding story. And he cannot and will not be bypassed. When I hear of people taking Ezekiel 47 and the pictures there of some kind of old uh, uh, temple and pr projecting that into the New Testament without passing it through the redefinition and expansion that Christ gives, I shudder. I do the same with racial identity, with Torah, 
and with territory. I know that's a lot to take on board, and particularly if uh, all you've really been exposed to is left-behind theology. But what I would ask you to do is sit and think clearly, to go back through the scriptures that I've mentioned to you, and to give at least some consideration. As I've said to you right at the beginning of this series, you don't necessarily have to agree with me, but if you think through carefully and take a stance on the basis of well-reasoned and thought-through theology, then I'll consider this series a success. God bless you guys. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.